0: Well, we continue our series in the Gospel of Fulfillment as we consider the better and truer son. So please grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't already. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, we'll be be in verses 13 through 23. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, by the way, we have one for you as a gift in the back uh, as you leave the sanctuary there on my left. Uh, There's some scriptures there. Feel free to take one. Well, the the historical narrative of Jesus' life as Matthew records it, it has significant implications on our lives. In previous passages, we've seen that Jesus, by his very name, by his very genealogy, he's the better king than David. He's the true son of Abraham who brings blessing. We've seen in recent passages how God is supernatural and how he powerfully dips his hand into this world and he does things, even a supernatural birth. Last week, Dan graciously proved from the text and showed us that Jesus is the king that calls us near to worship, to honor, and to enjoy him as we live as faithful followers of Christ. Here in our passage, we will center ourselves on, on one main idea. God orchestrates His sovereign will. The, the individuals we come across aren't necessarily new to us in our passage. Wise men, angels, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Herod. While the characters are known, what may come to surprise to us, or if we for forgotten, or it's brand new information is that they too, in the lives that God gave them, wrestled with the divine working and the sovereign leading of God in their life. Woven into the historical explanation and the identity of this Savior Jesus is the very real question of understanding how God manages, arranges, and harmonizes this world and our life. That word word sovereign, it has some misconceptions to it, especially in church circles. Now, we get this old word from an old Latin word, which means super above. Now, with some French and English influence, we come to understand super above with reigning. So, there is someone above reigning, ruling, and in control. So in the past, rulers of countries or provinces were even known as sovereigns, royal lords with status and kingship over a people. Biblically speaking, this characteristic is applied to the triune God that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's how Paul describes Jesus in 1 Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only sovereign The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Simply put, God is the true sovereign who reigns above and in some way beyond our full understanding. He orchestrates this world and everything in it, which can be a difficult thing to not just understand but cherish in the midst of questions. God, why do I hurt? Why would you allow this? Why did it have to turn out this way? If you're in control, why does it seem so bleak and frustrating and messy? Well, those are just some of the questions I ask. Your questions may be different, but we're often fundamentally seeking to understand the same thing. Well, God has a word to aid us in this conversation, and it's wrapped up in the identity of Jesus the truer and better son. So would you read with me, please, verses 13 through 23 in chapter 2? I'm going to grab a Kleenex first. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise!' "...take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious." In place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. First in our passage, in our text, we come to a perceived interruption. Now, I get this directly from verses 13 through 15, and I want us to look at these initial verses through the perspective of Mary and Joseph, and really as the first initial Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel record. Joseph and Mary have been told that God has supernaturally put a child in Mary. This little baby should be named Jesus because he's the better Yeshua. Yeshua in the Old Testament was Joshua. Joshua, who delivered people and led the nation of Israel to the new area code, to the 218, to the land of Canaan. Jesus is a better Yeshua. He's going to deliver and save his people from their sins. If that isn't confirmation enough, after Jesus was born, like we saw last week, wise men showed up at the door with sacrificial gifts to bring, to honor, as they joyfully worshiped this new king. It all sounds quite amazing. It sounds as if things are going according to plan. The wise men leave, and before the gifts can even be put away in the cupboard, verse 13 happens. An angel appears and tells the young couple that they have to get up and leave. (laughs) What? What happened to Jesus being the deliverer? What happened to the grand plan that God had promised? You see, lost in our quick reading of this verse is the reality of a couple of young people likely struggling with the same questions that you and I do. This son is going to save. Why do I have to run? God, why couldn't we just be a normal family and have things go the way they do for other Jewish homes? God, this feels like an interruption to your promises and our plans. Well, this couple responds in faith, and they obey God in verse 14 and 50. It states it pretty clearly. And they stay in Egypt until the death of Herod. I think we could argue this is a miracle of sorts. This short marriage, this newly minted family, has been already marked by holding their lives their dreams, and even their preferences loosely. Open hands. God shows up asking big and scary things, seemingly changing and interrupting the good plans that they had for their future. And enabled by the Spirit of God, they drop it all and they follow Him. The question has to be asked. It's the question I ask anyway. How? How could you do that? How could they be willing to accept this difficult task and change? Now, we've already said the Christian thing. They've been able by the Spirit of God. That's true. Perhaps they wouldn't have articulated it the same, but their actions, it seems they would agree, that they were convinced that God's calling on their life wasn't an interruption. Angels, babies, wise men, bringing gifts, fleeing for their lives, not a word of contempt and frustration. Now, they weren't robots. I'm sure they struggled in part to do these things. But it's clear that they simply accept their life these perceived interruptions as God's best for their life? Could we say the same, brothers and sisters? How many times does God lay big things, small things, surprises and changes in our lives, and we perceive them as interruptions? Well, there is no such thing as an interruption. As God lovingly orchestrates all things for His glory and our good, we can be assured that there are no accidents. In the moment, like Joseph and Mary, we may not know with certainty why God has moved or allowed or worked as He's chosen. But may we emulate their faithful following of God. Just kids, maybe teenagers. Holding their lives loosely following him. Some of us older thing older individuals can learn from these this young couple. But look again at the end of verse 15. The, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, certainly, this frames God's sovereign working in this young family's life. God did this, all of this that we're reading, to fulfill. The Scriptures, Matthew says. It's a direct quotation of Hosea 11.1. Now let's hone in on that for a moment as it centers squarely on Matthew's intent in sharing this whole story. Now remember, Matthew has fulfillment on the brain. He constantly points to the name, the character, and the life and ministry of Jesus as a fulfillment. Matthew argues that Jesus and his family Seemingly having their life interrupted, going to Egypt, well, it fits into that fulfillment. Now, if you've read the Old Testament or you've heard some of those ancient stories of Israel's past, you know that Egypt is kind of a big deal. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and those are some big names of the past. Uh, Jacob he became the nation of Israel, and his twelve sons became the twelve tribes of Israel, and. Because of the sovereign working of God, one of those sons named Joseph came to prominence in Egypt under Pharaoh, and in fleeing, running away from death and starvation, the family or the nation of Israel fled to Egypt. They fled to Egypt for protection. Sound familiar? So Matthew comes thousands of years later and says that Jesus has done the same exact thing. Jesus, it seems, begins to retrace the steps of Israel's flight to Egypt that happened so many years before. Matthew even dares to say it's a fulfillment of it, which is strange language, because Hosea makes no prophecy. What we're beginning to see is is the early stages of an argument that Matthew makes throughout the entire gospel narrative. Jesus is the truer and better Son. So going back to Hosea, God's children, the nation of Israel, they proved unfaithful. They they came out of Egypt, they disobeyed God's commands, and they incurred judgment on themselves for ignoring God's covenant promise with them. Jesus, on the other hand, As we'll see in the weeks to come. He comes out of Egypt, even as a child, and obeys his father perfectly. He conquers temptation, and he fulfills the law of God. Matthew's great aim for us this morning, as he writes this, is that as we read his gospel, and we come to the name and the character and the person of Jesus, in everything Jesus says and does, We come away with an awe, an honoring, and a deep love of following this Savior who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' childhood was no interruption. It was the fulfillment of God so that Jesus would prove to be faithful where Israel and we have failed. His active, Jesus' active obedience, his perfect sonship, is what made him the perf- perfect sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. He died as the truer and better son so that we might become children of God by faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Praise God. Praise God that he was the better son on our behalf. But I, I want us to notice in the, in the text not just a perceived interruption, but a perceived inconvenience. And this time, we take the perspective of Herod. So look directly at verses 16 through 18. Now, we have read it already, but Herod, he's upset. He's been duped. To cover his basis, he makes a calculated order. Just in case there's some kind of margin of error, he kills every male child under the age of two. That ought to take care of any young king coming to rule up and take his throne, he thinks. So Jesus is not simply an inconvenience, but as Dan shared last week, Jesus is a threat to the kingship and the throne of Herod. Now Herod, in history, has a bit of a reputation for being a violent man. He even killed his own sons because he thought they might take his power. And we find that language again, though, in verse 17. Matthew says this terrible thing took place to fulfill Jeremiah 31.15, a promise of future weeping and darkness uttered by a prophet. Now, if you go back and you read Jeremiah 31, it's a chapter full of agony, but it's a chapter full of hope as well. Rachel wept for the children of Israel who would die in exile back in Jeremiah. But as Jeremiah continues, and you read thirty-one. Yes, there is judgment and death, but born out of judgment and death is the new covenant promises where restoration and life and peace would come one day. So here comes Herod in our passage, bringing death and weeping. Here's how one commentator explained the, just kind of the context in the scene. Bethlehem and its surrounding areas had a modest population. So it was likely around 20-plus boys who were slain in Matthew 2. It was a great tragedy for those families in that town. So Matthew reminds the reader that great tragedy has taken place, but it's the predicted agony that Jeremiah had told us about. Death and weeping would come, but born out of that is hope. Hope for God to powerfully be with us. To fulfill new covenant promises made of old. Jesus is the truer and better son who's come to bring restoration, Matthew argues. I have a little devotional book that I read through. I, I came across, across this prayer in my devotions this week. Dear God, so much weeping. Such a burden of lamentation. I will not gloss over the terrible pain and sorrow that comes from vanity and anger. But neither will I forget the final word of resurrection. And that is our prayer. We live in a world with weeping and pain and circumstance. And Matthew points us to a resurrection, a new covenant. Yes, there is weeping that you hear, but it's the gun that fires that brings restoration into this world. But I want us to go back to Herod for a moment in all this. What is that dude's problem? There's a number of things we can point to, but what is the underlying issue with Herod's perceived inconvenience of a little boy coming to be king. What's his problem? He's killed his own sons and these boys and probably countless others. And it points to a deeper question of what is a person? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? To reflect him? To represent him? To live with him all my days? Personhood And the value of every life is intimately connected to the God who created us. So I've committed every year, as churches recognize Sanctity of Life Sunday, which it is today, to preach on this topic. Now, I didn't plan this, but providentially, the Lord has us here in a passage that talks about the lack of value that Herod placed on the image of God in these young children. Herod wasn't devaluing and killing the unborn. Those, he was killing those already brought to life from their mother's womb. Certainly, we see correlations between Herod's day and ours. Isn't it interesting that Jesus also grew up in a culture where the government legislated in ways that showed little care and value for the image of God found in people? I know many of you think this is a modern phenomenon. It's not. There's nothing new under the sun, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says. So even this week, as our the state of Minnesota finds itself divided on the issue of abortion, the fundamental issue, the underlying issue, remains the same, and it has for thousands of years. Is all human life valuable? and to be honored and protected because it's made in God's image. Yes, without qualification, all, period, life, period, has value, period. The Christian worldview is radically different from Herod's in our text and the world around us on this point. Many believe that. Some people vote solely based on that. It's a constant declaration from a tradition of Christian belief that all life matters, including the life that's soon to be born. Praise God, we believe that that's true. However, will we apply that same declaration consistently across the board? Will I value life and come alongside a scared single mother or father in need? Will I value life and protect the vulnerable widows and elderly who need friends? Will I value life and advocate for the poor and needy around me? Will I value life and financially assist a desperate individual or family in my community? Will I value life and show care and friendship to singles who often feel neglected? especially in churches? Will I value life and welcome the stranger, the drug addict, and the outsider? Will I value life and love the person who's the total opposite of me, but made in the image of God? My fear is that we declare That baby in the womb is not an interruption. We declare that, and then we turn around, and we live our lives as though other image bearers are an interruption. That's hypocrisy. Like Herod, if a person is a threat or an inconvenience to my life or plans, how do I respond to them? I may not murder them, but how often are we tempted to simply get rid of the problem so we don't have to deal with it? C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now, it's ripped out of its context some, but Lewis helps us see the divine. You have not met someone who wasn't made in the image of God. So may God help us repent if we've treated God's image in other people poorly. And I do have some good news for us. I have great news. If you have had an abortion or assisted or paid for one, if you have devalued human life by engaging in the rape culture of pornography, if you have failed to honor God's image in your children or family, if you have seen other people as an inconvenience to your life, if this is you, and I likely got all of this, all of us, if this is you, there is grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Jesus came to save. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to bring new life and conquer the sin in our hearts. He radically changes us, forgives us, and lives in us so that we can obey the greatest two commands, to love God and to love our neighbor, all of them made in the image of God. I want to encourage you that God is And he has already shaped this in us. So may he do it even more and more. Well, lastly, I'd like to point out to us not just a perceived interruption or an inconvenience, but a perceived detour. And this is found in our concluding verses 19 through 23. And we take the perspective of Joseph and Mary again as we see their homecoming. An angel passes along the message that it's safe to now return, that Herod has died. Which makes, I think, verse 22 really interesting. Plans are changed yet again as they find out that the appointed heir and ruler, the son of Herod, Archelaus, or archilus there's multiple ways to say it, he's in power. So another dream they have, another change in a seemingly, seemingly endless amount of detours, and now on to Nazareth. History records that after Herod died, this is interesting, the Roman government didn't trust his children to lead in place of them. So they took Herod's reign and they kind of split it up. And Archelaus, he was in charge of a few providences, including Judea and Samaria, and some extra biblical information here, Archelaus didn't last long. Even for Rome, he was considered too cruel and incompetent, and he lasted in the position just a few years. But it's verse 23 I want us to sit on for a moment. Look, at it. it says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, again, Matthew, he has fulfillment on the brain. This is the third time in our passage that he's used this kind of language. Matthew argues that Jesus and his family residing in Nazareth is the fulfillment of the prophets of old. But here's something really interesting, a little nugget for you. You will not find a verse in the Old Testament that mentions Nazareth. Not one. You will find no specific passage that says the coming Messiah and the Savior, the future reigning king and deliverer, he's going to have a Nazarene address. Doesn't exist. Okay, could this be a mistake? Maybe Matthew has it wrong. Well, what we find here is what we find with many teachings of the Scripture. There are some, some doctrines that we hold to that are not explicitly stated chapter and verse. Some teachings of the Scriptures are revealed through the totality of the evidence of the biblical data. So here's how one academic explains it. This phrase does not appear in any prophetic writings or indeed anywhere in the Old Testament. A fulfillment formula without a quotation to a verse typically signifies that the thought pervades the Scripture. The thought that Jesus is a Nazarene pervades the Old Testament. So scholars agree with the sentiment, and they suggest that if Jesus was known as the Savior, Jesus from Bethlehem, if he was known that way, if that's where he grew up, well, a title like that, Jesus from Bethlehem, would have a lot of pomp to it. It'd be like, uh, you know, Matt being from Grand Rapids. I mean, you think Grand Rapids, and you think so much of me when I say I went to high school there, don't you? Or maybe not. So, Jesus being called Jesus of Bethlehem would have brought recognition, royalty with it. But Jesus of Nazareth, As we read in the New Testament, it brings with it overtones of contempt, humble beginnings, and God using the despised and the rejected, just like the prophets predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus being known as a Nazarene was the humble beginnings that the prophets had wrote about so many years before. There's more that could be said. But Nazareth was no detour. God's wise planning of Jesus' life, his name and genealogy, his supernatural birth, his recognition and honoring as a king, and even his constant relocation as a child. It was all part of God's design. Every part of Jesus' life was used to demonstrate and display his character and his beauty. Every part of Jesus' life was connected to the grand redemptive plan that God would bring salvation to people made in His image. This reality is at play in your life, Lakewood. Did you know that? God has you where He has you. God has moved and worked in your life in a very specific and particular way to bring great glory and honor to His name and ultimate joy in your life. you wondering why you have the address you do, the relationships you do? God has you where He has you. No detour, divinely planned. So like Jesus, the seemingly endless detours in your life, yeah, they're, they're not detours. God orchestrates His sovereign will. The Lord is above, reigning, seeing, and working all things for good for those who love Him. So whether it be an address change, a fractured relationship, physical and financial difficulty, a transition with work, kids, difficulty with school and sports, or even the way you look, God is orchestrating His good and sovereign plan. You are connected to the grand story of human history. God is using you in your life, even this week, to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. No interruptions, no inconveniences, no detours. He's using us for his glory and our joy. Would you pray that he would help us do that this week? Father, that is a big prayer request, but you're a big God. Just as you moved and worked in Jesus' life, help us to trust that you're doing the same in ours. And even though it's not communicated, I wouldn't doubt that Mary and Joseph had nights praying together, sleepless nights of anxiety, big questions of why things worked out the way they did. God, would you prove to us that you really are the true sovereign? Would you prove to us this week that you're doing something? It's easy for us to feel discouraged when we can't see or explain. It's even to be frustrated by the circumstances around us. Will we not trust in ourselves? Would we not lean on our own wisdom and strength? Would we faithfully follow Christ? Help us to do that, we pray in His name. Amen.